turn with me, uh, if you could, once again, to the little book in the Bible called Titus. Titus. It's a letter by Paul to a disciple of his called Titus. In um, chapter 1, verse 4, Paul calls Titus his true child in the faith. His son. Now, we're not really studying this whole letter. In fact, we're actually um, just looking at one verse and kind of its implications for this church body. That one verse has launched us into a certain direction that we've spent two weeks considering. Very important truth for the church. Today we'll not finish it. <laughs> In fact, I was realizing this. I sat down. My wife had her notes out, and, you know, this the to take notes or deal there. And I realized as I was looking at it because I put the notes uh, the, the, together that way, and then later on finished everything. The, the backside of this you know deal here is just ornamental. So. Um, Anyway, sorry, <laughs> I'm giving you a fair warning, so you might uh, consider that. Uh, now, Titus 1.5 is really a point about appointing elders. And so we're taking a time out from First Peter to address this topic about the church. Look at the verse, if you will, with me. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Horatius Bonar from the 1800s once said this about the church. I looked for the church and I found it in the world. I looked for the world and I found it in the church. How do we keep the world out of the church while also getting the church into the world? You're saying that's the difference between being of the world and in it, to be able to give it what it needs. How do we do that? That is the work of the Word of God, the ministry of it. We need to be, as a church body, committed to the ministry of the Word. It has that power. It does that. John Calvin put it this way. Those who wish to build the church by rejecting the doctrine of the Word build a hog's sty and not the church of God. How do you keep the world out of the church is this. You need men who will be committed to the ministry of the word and who will be committed to the life the word calls us to live and will be committed to the people the Lord saves by that word and you collectively come to be this organic unit. Men that can keep this church from looking like 
the pig pen spiritually? Who will do that? Who can do that? Well, God has given us the means to do that very thing. Appoint elders. That's how you do it. Just go out and appoint elders. You say, why is that relevant for us at GBC? Because here we are at GBC and the Lord has sovereignly put us in the position where we only have one elder. And I say it that way because it is sovereign because here we are bumping into Titus 1.5 and he says, appoint elders. So I wonder what we should do. We should appoint elders. Set in order what remains and appoint elders. So we want to obey our Lord. And this is why we're here. This is what we're doing. Paul started the ministry there on Crete. And he just tells Titus, finish what I started. Paul knows that it is actually the Lord's church. And our work then is to finish what the Lord has started in this church. What can be done? Well, we know for GBC, the place to start, appoint elders. Go get more men. Go get more men. I'll tell you this here. There's a little side note. I think that you can... Always tell the health of a church where there are men present. And what I mean by that is, I don't mean here, I mean where there is a presence of godly men. God has created men to be, to have a leadership role in the home, and really even on this earth. That is not to say that men are superior. Not at all. Every day we demonstrate we're not. But it is for us to understand that, and I tell you, you go into a church where you don't see that presence, and I'm telling you, you are looking in the face of a church that is struggling. So our work is to finish what the Lord has started in this church to get more men. Jesus said in Matthew 9, pray for the Lord to, to add workers to the harvest. We need workers. First Timothy 3.1, it is a fine work you desire. We need men who will commit to that divine work. And don't miss this. Finding elders to appoint elders is a whole church responsibility. We don't uh, we don't mail order them, okay? We don't go to some seminary and put in our order. I mean, these guys aren't in the Amazon inventory, okay? They won't be arriving at our door in a box. So, where do we find these guys? Right here at GBC. Where we find them. Right here in Fallon. That's where we find them. So we turn to God's Word to understand this process. Now we've already worked through Titus 1 5, the five guides 
to becoming more ministry focused. And the bottom line, appoint elders, but how? What's the process? Well, there in your notes, to get to the process, we need to ask some questions. Now, we are asking these questions because Paul didn't actually tell Titus how to appoint elders. He didn't actually tell him. I mean, this must be something that Titus already knew. It must be uh, something that he's already talked with him about. Maybe that something that Titus has seen from Paul himself. Because the Bible isn't silent about this. He probably watched how Paul did it with the... To, with the other churches and you put Paul's letters and Peter's and even John's all together and you get an idea of how to do it. So let's ask questions and let's answer them. The first one is this. What is the role of an elder? And we started with the job description. And you remember last time we worked through eight pieces from Scripture. We took them from the statement there in your notes about the role of elders. So as an answer to what is the role of an elder, we have there in our notes, the church is led by a plurality of qualified men who unanimously, equally, and autonomously shepherd the local church. So let's work this through again, reminding ourselves, first, an elder leads the church. He brings leadership. And you remember we talked about it being servant leadership. Servant leadership is where you start. Now God's kind of leader for his church is one who leads. And and here's how he leads. He leads by planning. But he does so with an open hand to his will. He leads by reproduction. Reproducing other leaders, multiplication. He leads by example. And so that's the first one. He leads the church. Secondly, we learned the role of an elder is to not only lead, but it is to be a plurality. To be a plurality. The church is led by a plurality of men. Now, what does that mean? See if I can give you some more thoughts than what I gave you last Lord's Day. Um, it's a it's a squad. I mean, it's more than one, but it's together. Jeremy Ryan in his little book on eldership reminds us this: many you've heard this before. Many hands make what light work, and teamwork divides the task and multiplies the success. Those are common things we know but they should be applied at the leadership level. Now, where does this idea of plurality come from? Well, one of the earliest ideas of plurality, believe it or not, comes from a guy named Jethro. And no, I'm not talking about the hillbillies. All right? This is a, there's actually a Jethro in the Bible. Did you know that? All right. Exodus 18. That's what he told Moses, Jethro did. Now you remember Moses, he, Moses was trying to, he had the, all these people, it was like two to three million people, and they're kind of going through the wilderness here, or there, in the desert. 
And Moses was trying to lead these people and judge them all on his own. Jethro said, and by the way, Jethro was Moses' father-in-law. It's always good to listen a little bit to your father-in-law. He says, uh, Exodus 18, 18, you can't do it alone. And then in verse 21, Exodus 18, 21, but you should select from all the people, able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating bribes, those kind of people. They should judge the people at all times. Then they can bring you every important case themselves. Now here's what I want us to latch on to. In this way, you will lighten your load and they will bear it with you. That's the idea of a plurality. That they bear it with you. With you. A plurality of elders allows for a few things that are vital to leadership in Christ's church. Now, not only do they, does a, a squad of elders help lighten the load, but having a plurality increases the productivity. It increases effectiveness. It increases efficiency. How about this one with regards to a plurality? Have you ever thought of it this way? Elders are sinners living by grace just like you and me, and so it provides some safety nets as well so that others, they can oversee them spiritually. Ryan asks the question, who oversees them spiritually? I like that. Shepherds who shepherd shepherds. That's why you need a plurality. Here's another one. When I was um, ordained, the, the main teaching elder at the church preached a sermon. He preached a sermon in front of the whole church. But he said at the very beginning, and I knew this was coming, so it wasn't like this was a shock to me, but it was even, it, I, but I took it uh, in a very alarming way. The, the, the alarming way that it was meant to, to be given. But he said as he got up in front of the whole church, he said, I preach this sermon to one person today, and that one person was me. And he looked right at me. And one of the things he said was this, Mike, when you become an elder, by the way, this is a church of like 1,200 people, just so you know, so I felt very singled out. <laughs> you become an elder at the church you're going to, to pastor, you will be putting a target on the front of you so that Satan can easily see it. And you do that every time you faithfully preach the word. The target gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And he will come after you, he said. And so a plurality helps an elder face Satan's fiery darts. See? You say, why, why are we doing this? I don't know about you, but that's, that's a good enough reason right there. Appoint elders, right? 
So the role of an elder led by a plurality, listen, of qualified men. Then we're going to get into that more in a moment. But the point here is, you got to find spiritually excellent men. Do not look for men like this in the business society. So we're not talking about businessmen. We're not talking about confident men. We're not talking about smart men. We're not talking about funny men, not relational men. Find spiritually qualified men. Men who meet God's spiritual standards from the heart that have an eternal quality about them. Don't get distracted by Saul's. Look for David's. Notice the fourth one here. Men. Men and women are equal in God's eyes. That's very clear all throughout Scripture. You read Galatians 3 and that becomes a real clear thing. But God has made... I love the book that Alexander Strzok wrote. um, Equal yet different. Yes. Equal, yet they have different, we have different roles. We have different roles. This is the reason why it is abhorrent to God that these days, men that are trying to make themselves to be like women and women that are trying to make themselves to be like men, you're shaking your fist at God when you do that. God has made us to be different. so that we complement one another. In 1 Timothy 2.12, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. He doesn't mean quiet in the church or everywhere in life. He means quiet as it pertains to the teaching of the Word in the church. The Word of God is our authority, and it is to be taught by men. Godly men. I like how Ryan addresses this. He says, Does this mean that women can never teach or shepherd, confront sin or model godliness? Of course not. You can probably think of godly women whom God has used to shepherd and shape you as I can. But the eldership is more than a gifting or a ministry. Elder describes a specific office, a divinely appointed role, a distinct position within the organizational structure of a local church just as Father is a distinct, divinely appointed position with the family. And as with the role of Father, so God has sovereignly summoned qualified men to the role of elder, end quote. I like that. That's helpful. Fifth, we put on there, the role of an elder is that he would do all of this unanimously. Unanimously. Major church decisions for doctrine and direction are to be 100% agreed upon. 100%. And by the way, I, 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 uh, I've seen this in action so many, very many years ago. This was so good to really be a part of this. And even... In fact, I, I, I go back uh, 30 years ago being a part of a group of men. And I, the reason why I go back 30 years ago is because we're talking about a good, you know, 12 to 14 men. And every time it had to do with doctrine and direction, 
it was always 100%. If there was one man that dissented or wasn't there, they slowed down the process. They said, all right, we got to keep working this through until we have complete agreement. You see, well, that could take a long time. That's right. The wheels on the bus go round and round, but they go slow at times. But that's okay. Because you'll get there when the Lord wants you to, as the Lord wants, wants you to, with the full confidence that you're going where the Lord wants you to go. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, all speaking the same words to be in full agreement. Why? Because there is one will of God, only one. The elders are to give themselves to knowing it, discovering it, and then moving us into it. Ephesians 4, 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. So elders seek this oneness. To know it, to preserve it, to proclaim it, to lead us into it. And that oneness is the will of Jesus Christ found in his word. That's why it takes so much work. Sixth, it is to be equally shared. Equally shared. Many gifts with these men, but all equal. There's no hierarchy. The Baptists have it wrong. There's no senior pastor. There's no chief. There's no president. A little bit more like the Presbyterians. All together and equal. You say, are there differences? Sure. I mean, you have differences in gifts. You have also differences. I mean, some will get paid for because they're they're doing it more as a full-time work. First Timothy, that's for, by the way, that's First Timothy 5.17. So there's a, so we do this unanimously. We, we lead unanimously. Sixth, it's to be equally shared. So we saw that. Seventh, autonomously. Autonomously. Now that just simply means the church has its own accountability. It doesn't mean we're not accountable, therefore we do what everyone. What it means is that there the accountability that the Lord is going to call. You know in Hebrews thirteen, seventeen, where it talks about the elders, you know, obey your obey your your elders because they're going to give account for your soul. What it means is they're going to give account for one local church. Not many local churches. And so the Lord looks at each individual local church. And so the church, each church is responsible for where it goes. Listen, even if it is a part of a denomination, the elders are going to give account. That's what the Bible teaches. And then eighth, the role of an elder is to shepherd. We talked about that feeding, leading, protecting, and the best ones smell like sheep. Why? Because they realize they are sheep. And so they get around sheep to lead and guide sheep 
because they are sheep too. Now that takes us to the next question. So there you go. Now we've, we've kind of, we've asked that question, the role of an elder, to give you kind of the job description, to give you the, the parameters of kind of what this thing is that way. Now let's ask the question, well then who can be an elder? And we started last week to answer that by number one, saying one who desires it. One who desires it. So go from where you're at there in Titus and turn to First Timothy 3. <clears throat> because the rest of our time is going to be in First Timothy 3. Now, the question for this one is, do you want to? 1 Peter 5, he says, an elder should not be compelled to do this. Shouldn't have to twist his arm. There should be a want to. But before you do the want to, you hold up the, 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 the yield sign. The yellow yield sign, you say, we've got to go back to the first point, the first question we ask, and say, now you do understand, this is what's being asked of you. Now do you want to, right? Uh, is that desire still there? Look at verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Notice two words here. The words aspire and the words desire. We have to first start internally. Notice too what the man desires. A fine work. He understands, this person understands, this is work. It's labor. See, what is the work? What's the labor? People. People. getting truth to people, helping people spiritually, getting them to move where the Lord wants them to move, right? And working at that. And so we're talking about desiring to do that. Paul uses two Greek words here to help us understand what he means. Now, let's look at this. It's the word aspire, and it's the word translated desire. The first one means to reach out after. It is an external reach. This word is not talking about motive. It's just simply talking about just external, what you might call external passion. The second word, though, has to do with a strong inclination. A, a strong passion, a deep pull. An inward desire. So you have this; these two, and they work really together. The external and the internal. You put them together, and you have a man who is driven. Who outwardly goes after it, and who is driven by a deep passion to do this. And I tell you what, when you learn what an elder is... To be about, it's shocking to me that anybody would want to do this stuff, right? Praise the Lord that he puts it in the heart of men to be raised up to do this. It is a desire 
that is so strong and consuming that it drives that man to serve the Lord this way in his church and for his church. Now, you know, as we think about this issue of desire, I mean, it is possible to know Scripture, to really understand theology and doctrine and be that person who's sound in that way, and to be a reader and to be skilled at teaching. It is possible to really care for people, for souls. But listen, but to not have a desire to be an elder. You can have all those other things. If you don't have this, then you shouldn't be appointed to be an elder. Again, you're not, Peter says, you're not to serve an elder as an elder because you feel compelled to. This has to be voluntarily. You have to desire it. It's, it's interesting that in Acts 11, it wasn't Paul that went looking for Barnabas to serve as an elder of the church. Barnabas found Saul. But you know what? Saul said, yes, and it didn't take any convincing. Sure, yes, yes. Why? Because this is what he desired to do. But more than that, he was qualified for it. So point number two, who could be an elder? One, not only who desires it, but one who meets the qualifications. One who meets the qualifications. This is verses 2 through 7 of 1 Timothy. And to help you, I'm pretty sure we're not going to get past verse 5 this morning. So, all right. Now, we said there are specific spiritual standards that Jesus has for his men when it comes to you know, leading his church. Now, in the simplest way, if I could just say it this way, they just need to look like him. When we talk about Jesus being the one who leads his church, what these qualifications help us understand is you find men then that look like him and you let them lead the church. Look for men that look more like Jesus Christ. You say that's going to be impossible because Jesus was perfect. That's true. And so we're definitely talking about direction and not perfection. I don't want to know, does a man sin in a certain way or not sin in a certain way? I want to know, what does his repentance look like? Look for men that look like Jesus Christ. Well, it has to be a standard that can be proven. So here we are, 1 Timothy 3, and I want you to stay here. We're going to be in verses 2 to 7, but uh, jump over for just a moment. The, the verses 2 to 7 are all, all, all about the qualifications of an elder. But look at in verse 8. You have the qualifications for deacons. And notice in verse 10, these men, talking about the deacons, must also first be tested. And then let them serve as deacons. Notice the word also. That means tested just like the elders are tested. So let's ask the question, what's on the test? Verses 2 through 7. 
gives us to the test. They have to be proven in four areas. You test someone to prove that they have met the standards. So let's look at the first one, proven character. Proven character. Now what you have here is an umbrella for all of them. You have one character trait that really sums up all of the character traits. It's similar to Galatians 5 when talking about the fruits of the Spirit where he says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. Love is the umbrella for all of those other ones. Well, in this case, you also have an umbrella. Notice what it is. Verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. There's the umbrella. All the other character traits flow under the umbrella of being above reproach. Above reproach is the Greek word onapolemptos. You don't have to write that down. I just wanted you to hear it so that you know that I'm actually talking about a specific one word here. And that word literally means to not be taken hold of. So this is a person that is not able to be taken hold of. Not because they're slippery and every time you think you've cornered them, they slip away. That's not the, 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 the picture here. Rogers and Rogers, my favorite Greek analytical lexicon. You say, how many of them do you have? Well, I don't know, but I like this one. Um, Rogers and Rogers says this, beyond criticism, that's what this word means, unimpeachable. They go on to say the word implies not only that the man is of good report, but that he is deservedly so. Plutarch used the word to describe the character of one who teaches children. So in other words, could you be okay if they had your children. They were around your children. These are people that are unassailable. If you want to understand this word even more, you could say that you're like a cup with no handle. And what that means is there's nothing to easily grab hold of that sticks out. Again, why do we need men like this? Because these traits get us closer to Jesus, to to seeing him. I mean, that's, that's our goal, right? I mean, to look like him. And so we need men that look as much like him as possible to help us look like him. Notice, he must be. This isn't a suggestion. It is an absolute must. Again, we put before us not perfection, but direction. This is where you would say the arrow points in this direction. Godly character. Now, 11 character traits here. Let's look at these. By the way, I will say this. Almost every one of these character traits are repeated with the deacons except for able to teach. 
And I, I like that because he just, it tells us these are important <laughs> in no matter what direction you're looking at. All right, the first one, husband of one wife. Literally a one-woman man. Now, understand this is talking about character. And I say that because, boy, have I read a lot of stuff that is crazy out there. I mean, I just think, where did you get this idea from? You know, people kind of take off on certain things. So let me just say this to start with this. this, It is not talking about marital status, okay? I mean, a single person could be an elder. It is possible. You say, how do you know that? Because Paul is calling for there to be elders in the church, and in 1 Corinthians 7 he says, I wish everyone could be as I am, single. But that makes no sense then if he's saying, hey, if you're single... Remain single. But if you want to be an elder, then don't listen to what I'm saying, right? I mean, is that what he's saying? I don't think so. Why would he want people to remain single if the requirement was to be married in order to become an elder? So I don't think it's marital status here. It has to mean something else. It also says nothing here about whether or not he has been married before or even divorced. Listen very carefully. It is a character point. A character point. So what you need to ask yourself is, what does it mean to be a one-woman man at the character level? Okay, let me just even spell it out in a greater way. It's a purity point, okay? It's a point about purity. It means you are devoted to one woman. She is your devotion. You could be married, but not be a one-woman man. In Titus 1, you have the same character trait, and then later... It says self-controlled. It's interesting that he doesn't say self-controlled here, but I think that's implied in so very many of these. So the idea is you have have made purity an issue in your life. In other words, there's control there. And you've given work for for you to grow in that control and to continue to have that control. devotion to one woman. And if you're not married, you're devoted to only one that the Lord would give you, right? In other words, you're, you're not looking around. You're not, you know, going out there to, you know, test drive. That's not you. The same if you're married. You're not looking around. Not with others, not virtually. And I'll tell you, pornography is a massive issue today. We got to help our men from young as they get older to fight at that level. 
elder says, I am going to make myself a one-woman man in every direction. See? So that it could be said of me, he's devoted to the one. He's devoted to the one. That's the first. So you're looking, you want to appoint an elder, start there. Here, there it is. Secondly, temperate. Now in this list and in Titus 169, there are a handful of character traits that are related to self-control, as I mentioned, and this is one of them. Now the word here, the Greek word is nephalios, and it, it means sober-minded. It's, in fact, actually, oftentimes it's, it, talks, it has to do with being somebody that's not drunk. But here I believe it's not literally talking about it because later on he makes that point. I think the idea here is that this is a man who's clear-headed. In other words, this is a person who doesn't let himself get carried away by his emotions, by, by his passions. Well, we could all be that way. In fact, um, you know, uh, I really have had to, so for very much of my life, and, and uh, you know, of course, always try to, you know, blame it on me being Hispanic or being, you know, you know, have a little bit of Sicilian blood in me. But there could be a little truth to that, you know. But boy, I tell you what, you can't be ruled by those passions. We might say this is a person who stays cool. They're even keeled, especially in the face of adversity and pressure decision-making. So you're able to stay right there in the middle. Maybe you could say his thermostat keeps him in the middle. Now let me be also clear. He's not saying that we got to go out there and find a bunch of Spocks, okay? That person doesn't have emotion. You'd make a really good elder. You're almost, you remind me of the wall, you know? Could be an elder, you know? He's not saying that either. But what he is saying is he has that emotion and it is kept in check all the time. It's right there. It's right there. To be used when it needs to be used. Third, he says prudent. This is the Greek word sophron and it it literally means it's two words that he, that he combines to be one word. Uh, Forneto is the word for uh, the mind, to think. And it comes, the root here is from sozo, which is to save. And so it literally means to have saving thoughts. Now the difference between these two words, the last one is defense, this one is offense. You make decisions that keep yourself closer to the middle and you're able to rescue yourself from decisions that would be considered, you know, wild or crazy or out of control. That's the idea of being prudent. You know, this is the person that says, well, let's see. Uh, You're asking me to keep going till midnight it's 10 o'clock. I got to be somewhere to be, if, you know, actually able to do something tomorrow at 6. I think I'm going with 10 o'clock. 
That's, that's a prudent decision. It's prudent. I could, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with this because I know this is going to be the best thing for what it is that I need to accomplish tomorrow. See, Prudent. Fourth is the word respectable. This is, we get our English uh, word uh, cosmos from this, or cos, cosmetology or cosmopolitan, all those. Cosmios is, it just simply means orderly. Keeping structure, keeping all the parts together. Uh, it, can, it can refer to ordering your inner life. You might look at that guy that is all tucked in and, you know, you might think to yourself, hey, loosen up, guy, come on, you know, be a little bit, you know, free with yourself. You might want that, but listen, we all respect the guy that's tucked in, right? There's a respect for that. Because you understand you're actually trying to, you know, get things done. Trying to be efficient. This is a person who sees loose ends and wants to deal with them. Fifth, hospitable. Now, we could put this one with a family trait, but it's here, and I think for good reason. The word literally means lover of strangers. I like it, saying it this way. One who loves new people. One who loves new people. Now, if you know that you have it within you to be the, you know, that you have that little uh, genome in you that's us four no more, shut the door, you know who you are. It's like, oh, I just like things the way they just, no new, no new people, right? Well, you're not very hospitable. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm here to let you know that. <laughs> This is a person who loves visitors. I mean, he's so glad you're here. Would you would you like to come over after you know church for lunch? I'm not asking all of you that. My wife would be very alarmed right now. I'm just saying that's a person that's you know who uses his home to welcome. Who uses the home to know people, to serve people, to get into the life of others. See. And by the way, back then this was a very critical trait because you'd have these people that would be travelers and and um, and they, they didn't really have, it's not like they had hotels. And, and what the ones that they did have were very sketchy, okay? In fact, very many of them were brothels. So it would be more advantageous if you just knew somebody, you could just sleep, you know, at their place. So this is, a, you know, you have these travelers. By the way, imagine, imagine if there was one person with an ounce of hospitality when Mary and, Mary and Joseph showed up to town about to have that baby, right? That gives you a little bit of an idea of context. We're not naturally like this. Sixth, able to teach. The skill of teaching. Now we're going to deal with this one at another point at a different time. But it's a character trait because there should be a love for the word. 
of that elder. And that love for the word causes them to get more proficient at using the word. And that love for the word and combined with a love for people to understand the word, it starts with the man himself. Seventh, not addicted to wine. This word literally means he doesn't sit next to wine. This is a person who isn't perched next to alcohol. By the way, a couple of ways in looking at this. This is not talking about the consumption of the alcohol. I mean, Ephesians 5 talks about that. Don't get drunk. Okay? This is something different. It's not a sin, by the way, for an elder to drink alcohol. But you are not to be one who is known as one who has a close relationship with it, being next to it. It's just not you. Why? Because you have set yourself aside again to be one who is marked by self-control. So that when the person that comes to you and needs help with how to have self-control knows that he's not coming to somebody who struggles with self-control. You understand that? You say, but what about those countries where drinking alcohol is a part of the culture? I want you to know that if you are a person who desires to be an elder, you're not being called to be a part of that culture here. We're talking about this church, which is located in America. Okay? You can try to make our town and country France, but we're not. And there are a lot of people that wouldn't want that. Called the shepherd people. How can you shepherd a person who struggles getting drunk when you yourself drink? Imagine showing up for that counseling appointment. I'm here to shepherd you away from the thing that controls your life. But don't you drink? Well, yes, but do as I say, not as I what? Do. Very difficult. I realize it's more complicated than that. But there's a reason Paul says not addicted. Do not be one who sits long at his wine, who is a slave of it. It's an issue here in America. We know it. We need to be ready to help people see that Christ is stronger than their addictions. We need to be those people that can help. See, how, how can we be those people? Be a person who lives in constant victory, see? And when you fail, be quick to repent. Right? So how do you how do you repent? Confess your sin to God. 
come alongside another person who's stronger in that area and ask him to pray for you and hold you accountable and encourage you in that way, right? You understand, by the way, now why it needs to be a plurality, right? Eighth, not pugnacious. Literally, not a fighter, not a brawler. Talking about physical fighting and being maybe a bully. But I think there's a little bit of a, 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 I see, you could say a a side to this, which has to do with, you know, kind of, Titus talks about not being argumentative, you know. You don't want to go to battle even with your words. You don't handle conflict with your fists. You say, but that's the Irish in me. Well, tell the Irish in you to calm down, right? I mean, it's just, you know, it's not helpful, okay? By the way, this does presuppose an elder is going to protect. He's going to defend the sheep, but we don't look to do it with our fists. We look to do it with our faith, right? We preach, we serve, we lead away from that kind of conflict. See, how do we do that? Preach and pray. Right? Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, armor of God, right? Ninth, but be gentle. Meekness is not weakness. Say, so why does an elder need to be gentle? I'll tell you why. Because we sheep are stubborn, aren't we? It helps a little more if I got a gentle a person being gentle with me because I'm probably going to be bristly with him because we sheep are stubborn. I mean, we'll keep repeating the same dumb pattern for no good reason, and there's usually not a lot you can tell us to change our direction. Isn't that true? How sad. Well, at least not until you've said it at least a dozen times, right, and then shown us and and you, you're going to have to help us understand that this is you know, God's word through it all. You're going to have to be gentle and patient, right, to be doing things like that. Tenth, peaceable, bringing two warring sides together. That's going to take a godly man. Have you noticed even though the Lord saves us and we have the Spirit and we have His Word and we have all these people around helping us, that we still find ways to disagree and get into all sorts of conflicts? Isn't that amazingly bad? We still can get it. I mean, we have all of this and we still can get into conflicts. Crazy. We need godly men that will not settle for truce, but get us to true peace. And then 11th, free from the love of money. We can't be fleecing sheep like the ungodly shepherds of Ezekiel 34. There are major things that ruin marriages, sex, addictions to alcohol and drugs, what to do with outside family, but also money. If you're going to be one who can help others in the church, you can't be one who loves money. It's a trap. We're here to build the Lord's kingdom, not our own. 
it eventually becomes a tool to something else that makes it clear that you don't actually love that person. The love of money. You love what the money can get you, see. And so we need godly men who are free from that. All right, the first way to test to see if a person meets the qualifications is to test their character. He must have proven character. Let me introduce you to the second area, and that is he must also have proven family. Proven family. Now, two passages I want us to see this from. And let me read them to you, and then let's think about what it is saying as we kind of bring all this together. Paul tells Timothy he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God? And then you have this in Titus 1.6. If any man is above reproach, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, how a man manages his home is the proving ground for him to be an elder. See, what do you mean by that? Parenting. Shepherding his home, his children, the whole family, which includes his wife. Jeremy Ryan compares how the world looks at leaders versus the church. Listen, American society paints a bright line between public and private, work and home. We evaluate a business leader on his or her ability to increase profits and meet company goals, not on the quality of his or her personal life. The leader's home world, children, marriage, sex life, is no one else's business, end quote. But then he says this, quote, but in the family of God, an elder's home matters immensely. In fact, marriage and parenting acts as a proving ground for elder fitness, end quote. Yeah. This is a big one. I want to break down what it says, and then we're going to talk about the implications. We'll start talking about it, and we'll roll this into next Lord's Day. reason is, I'll tell you, because we have taught this passage before a certain way, and I'm going to be teaching it just a little bit different. Not greatly different, just a little different. And I'll show you what the little different part is. Now, I believe... The reason is because it's more faithful to the understanding of the text in light of the context of both passages, just so you know how I got here. All right? Context. Let me just say it this way. This will help you. Now, whatever this qualification is saying, it must be the same thing for Titus as it is for Timothy. What he is telling Timothy is the same thing he's telling Titus. He didn't have different qualifications depending upon what the area was. They are the same qualifications. Under, work with, with that, okay? Start at that place. So with that, look at First Timothy 3, 4. 
He must be one who manages his own household well. Ryan says, management skill does matter for elders. Overseers should possess leadership ability as implied in the title overseer. However, we typically associate, quote, management with employees and policies, financials and strategic plans. Paul had in mind a different management venue, children and home, end quote. Now this word for management means, is, is, the, is the Greek term pro, proistemi, and it's two words that literally means to stand before. The father stood before the family. The father stood before all others, representing everything the family was about. Ryan goes on to say, can you see similarities between being a dad and being an elder? In both cases, a man takes on a leadership role. In both, he bears the primary responsibility to help those under his care grow up and live together in harmony. Both parenting and eldering are about guiding people toward maturity within a community context. Learn to shepherd God's family by shepherding yours first. End quote. Yeah. It literally is the training ground. Now what's the issue with the family? How do we know when a father has managed the household well? Well, First Timothy 3 gives us some clues here. He says, keeping his children under control. Whoa, what's that mean? I mean, is this the license to go around yelling at your kids? You know, snapping at them, forcing them to get in line, being a drill sergeant, you know, breaking out the whistle and all that? I don't believe that's what he has in mind. Let's make some observations here with both texts to see what we can get out of these. First, notice, this isn't dad abdicating his role. Fathers are key to having children that are under control. You cannot say, and I hope you don't say this, and if you do, you know, later on today, pray to the Lord, repent of this. You cannot say, I mean, I can't help it. I leave and they're sweet and, you know, give me hugs. It's got to be the mother, right? I come back and they're all crazy. They were kissing me on the cheek and telling me to have a good day and it's all chaos when I come back. No, it's the father is responsible. Ephesians 6, responsible to bring discipline and instruction into that home. Second thing. Notice the main characteristic of the home is control. Self-control. What's that mean? Kids that obey their parents. Kids that learn. I'll I'll give you deeper. Let's go deeper. Kids that learn first-time obedience. Immediate obedience. It's not a tug of war. It's not a wrestling. It's not a, I'm going to count to five. It's not a go, you go get a timeout. It's not that at all. First time obedience. 
kids that honor all authority over them. Would you like to know the main characteristic of a child according to Scripture? You know what a child is like? I'll give it to you. Ephesians 4, Matthew 11. They are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. That's what Ephesians 4 says. I think it's verse 14. Tossed to and fro. Jesus tells us they go back and forth between dancing and mourning. Jumping around crazy to crying and complaining like a grieved downcast. That's not like any children you know. You might have met some of them. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is they cannot be that. They have to have control. Now, I wish I had more time to keep this going. Let me just say this. We're going to come back to this because we really, really, really need to. This is vital. We live in an age where this is not happening. And I know, because I am coaching a lot of those parents as kids, it's not happening. We have to ask ourselves why, and then we have to be humble enough to say, all right, let's learn. How do we do this? How do we do this the Lord's way? And not say to ourselves, well, you know, they're fine. This is just the style. This is just how we are. We have to be an open hand and be willing to say, well, but how does the Lord want us to raise our kids? We're going to learn a little bit more about that and its connection to uh, the elder. Because notice, how is he going to be able to take care of the church of God, who's also the family? Whatever he does there needs to be done here. Oh, that we come back to that issue of self-control. Oh, that that would be the mark. Grace Bible Church controlled Ephesians 5 by the Holy Spirit as those that love Christ, that live for Christ, and that do so in the joy of serving and knowing Him um, and are marked by that because of because we just because of we love Christ. So that's where we're going. Alright? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us so much and and I, I my great fear, Lord, is, you know, it always is that I have um, under, under really done it. And uh, maybe I lacked clarity or maybe I lacked your tender heart for these precious sheep. I pray, Lord, you would take the things that we looked at and make sense of them for the body of Christ to live for you. Pray for this in Jesus' name.